It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. The Asheville Watchdog has run a terrific series of stories dissecting various issues plaguing downtown Asheville. One of the best in the series is from journalist Tom Fiedler. His story, which is part eight, probes why law enforcement, city officials, and nonprofits face such a challenge with the effects of meth and fentanyl addiction. And Fiedler lays at least some of the responsibility for the city's lack of action at the feet of city manager Deborah Campbell. And I don't mean to pick on her, but her personality and her ex- her record throughout her career has always been to avoid controversy. I'm not going to stick my neck out here. That's not the way a leader operates. And leadership entails taking chances. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. In a long career in journalism, Fiedler spent more than 30 years on the staff of the Miami Herald, most of them as executive editor. He also spent time as a Shorenstein Center Fellow at Harvard University. Now in retirement, he's a reporter with The Watchdog. We'll talk about his reporting for the Downtown Series and get to the crux of what he sees as a key roadblock for Asheville, its state-mandated form of government. Hey, Overlook audience, did you know that every month I produce more than 400 minutes of exclusive local content relevant to life in Asheville? The Overlook is a one-man band, well, along with the fantastic, generous guests I invite onto the show, but my point is I'm delivering something Asheville has never had before. If you value The Overlook, if it makes you a more informed and engaged citizen, consider joining my Patreon campaign. You can be a sustaining member for as little as five $5 a month. Your support would mean the world to me. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast. I began my conversation with Tom Fiedler by asking about the roots of the Watchdogs Downtown series and the particular focus he took with his reporting. 
The story really came out of, and we did brainstorm quite a bit. Once a week we get together and people throw out ideas. And the situation that we continued to hear and we were, I guess, seeing ourselves with what was happening in many parts of downtown, I think it reached the point where we thought this really deserves a very concentrated focus. What is happening in downtown Asheville, what happens to a city when what seem to be small things begin to reinforce each other and tighten that downward spiral. And I think it became clear to us that this was something that was worthy of a multi-part series. Is What is happening to Asheville? What are the elements that make up this problem? Ultimately, what might be done to change the direction and to reverse the spiral, which is what we saw happening here. That's quite a lot to take on. Tom, where did you come from with what you wanted to do with your own reporting in this series? The one story that I thought needed to be looked at is you have all of these many problems. All of them touch on what local government should be doing, the need or lack thereof of local government services, and who is actually in charge. The story really that I ultimately is looked at and told is that the structure of government here in the city of Asheville, and not just in Asheville, but in every municipality in the state of North Carolina, is set up so that there will never be a strong mayor, a strong mayor in the sense that the mayor is elected as a full-time executive who has executive authority, just as we think of a governor does or perhaps the president in in some way. That's not the case in, in Asheville and in North Carolina. And I thought that's really the story that needs to be told. You just asked a question, who's in charge? I think there are so many different agencies that tackle these problems. So you can pick the overlapping issues of homelessness and addiction. And we have a bunch of nonprofits who approach it. Our city and county have different programs. We have law enforcement that gets involved at certain levels. There are multi-avenues in to these intractable problems. And I thought your story did a good job of getting into that. And in particular, why did you choose, not that it shouldn't have been, it needed to be, and, and you did it well, but why did you choose addiction in particular as a focus in your story? I think because much at least of the perception that people have of the problem downtown leads back to addiction in the sense of the people who are most troubled by addiction seem to be the ones that create the most, for lack of a better word, disturbance to others. In most cases, they're homeless. And because of the addiction that they have, a number of things happen. First of all, it's extremely visible when you see someone who is in the throes of drug usage, somebody who is aggressive, perhaps, or yelling or doing something in public, shooting up. Uh, was, that was a common thing. Urination, defecation, those kinds of behaviors that clearly go back to some person who is maybe 
maybe partly this is a mental illness issue, and certainly there's some of that, but oftentimes people who have mental illness self-medicate by using drugs. And what has happened in Asheville, at least according to many people, and there's evidence for it, is that the kind of abuse uh, has gone from being perhaps alcoholism, drinking, to heavier drugs. Meth is a big one. And now, more recently, with fentanyl. And the result has been that the people who are struggling with this kind of abuse have become not only clearly publicly disturbed, but have become much more aggressive. And it's a different kind of a problem. Yeah, a cornerstone of your reporting focused on the rising public visibility of this just in the past few years, how much more visible this is, and how these new avenues of drugs are seemingly out of reach for how to work with people, how to deal with people, how to decrease the prevalence of these drugs. And one of the people you quoted was the director of AHOPE, which is one of the support agencies here that deal with people who are unhoused and on addiction issues. And you quoted the director as saying, basically, she threw her hands up. We don't know what to do. This is an entirely new class of drugs. In the past, we understood the behaviors, and now we don't. And we and I thought that quote, among anything in the entire series that you've read, I found that to be the most stark and illuminating about our challenges here yeah. as a city. Yes, first and foremost, the the drugs that are on the street and available, and particularly meth and with fentanyl, create a form of behavior that is different from in the past. Much more aggressive, out of control. I shouldn't say aggressive. That implies they go after people, but they're out of control. The other piece of that, though, and this begins to cascade, is that when people are in that kind of a situation, the only place they the others can turn, people who see themselves as perhaps victims of this, business owners, others, is they call the police. The police, with only minimal training, they don't have many options as to what to do. We had cases of one person we wrote about clearly mentally ill in need of treatment or different kind, had been in the past with something, I want to say, more than 200 arrests and releases over a period of a couple of years. And the reason is there was no place for that person to go to get the kind of help that they would need. And so you have all these elements. You mentioned this earlier, Matt, and it's important. We do have a number of different organizations, many of them nonprofits. Some of them are advisory boards to the city. Of course, you have elements of city government itself to deal with this. But there is no one single place that coordinates all of this and sets a direction and and even a location, a place where you can bring people who are in need of help and keep them there and provide options. A lot of scattershot pieces, but no one in one place that brings it all together. And that was really, the, again, the essence of my question about who is in charge here. Asheville is a mid to smaller size metropolitan area. Are other cities that have greater budgets, more resources available to them. Are they doing this differently and more efficiently and better? 
Absolutely, yes. And there are a number of things that other cities have done. Those are stories that we're continuing to write about. And there are a number of cities, all of whom seem to have problems much like we have at a similar scale that we, at least they had problems of a similar scale, and somewhat cities that share what Asheville is all about. What we did look at is cities that share many of these same elements and those cities that are known for dealing with this better than we have. An example, uh, Tucson, Arizona. Again, it's a city that's well known for tourism, relatively similar size to us, and it has handled things better. Alexandria, Virginia, of course, it's part of the greater Washington, D.C. area, but as a as a single governmental entity, well known for dealing with these same issues of drug abuse and homelessness and so forth. And I think the one thing that comes out when you look at them is that they have pulled all of the different elements that may have had a piece of it together into one organization that is able to treat the broader issue holistically. How are they able to do this in a way that Asheville hasn't? And you alluded earlier, you talked about our, for lack of a better term, weak mayor system of government here, where in North Carolina, city managers really pull the strings on everything. and, And they put into action, at least by design, the strategies that city council has voted upon and said, this is what our priorities are. You as the city manager implement this strategy. And the mayor is just one cog on this city council. In Tucson and in Alexandria, Virginia and elsewhere, where you have seen more efficient systems for handling this, are they just operating with different structures of government? In some cases, they are operating with a different structure. The Primarily, the different structure is the strong mayor. In some cases, they have a different name, but the strong and executive, a city executive. That's a person who is elected, but it's a full-time position with uh, full responsibility for executing. In other words, this is the person who is the who hires the city staff, hires the police chief and the fire chief and the social service directors and all of that. All of that comes back and is responsible almost entirely to the voters who put that person here. The problem that I believe that that is at least contributes to Asheville's inability to deal with this and why our response has been, in many cases, scattershot and ineffective. It's not money. If you take all of the money that is spent in these different areas and pull it all together, it's really a, a an extraordinary amount of money, $17 million, for instance. But the, it is it goes in different places. And, and again, there's no area where you can find, where you can take advantage of scale, perhaps, or synergies that that become much more efficient. So we're putting a lot of money out there, but it's being spent ineffectively. Cities that are doing it effectively, Tucson being one, Alexandria being another, cities that you really wouldn't think of up in Illinois, for instance, that the Rust Belt, 
But again, they have coordinated it. And in some cases, just having a single executive with authority who answers directly to voters, with the city council being a check, you have to get resources from the city council, but it it brings things together into one place. What we have here, I think, is a system that has failed in in a number of ways. The strong manager weak council form of government can work if you have a strong manager. But you have a strong manager when you have a council that has vision and sets a clear policy so that the manager knows that if I take the initiative here, for lack of a better word, I know the councilors have my back. I can take a risk. I can push the end. I can go to the council with an idea, and hopefully they will trust me enough to give me the latitude to try, even if I might fail one or two, in one or two places. Right. So there doesn't seem to be a lack of will here. So why are we seeing these problems just because we have a city manager with that title versus mayor? What's the difference here? What? Why are we not able to tackle these issues in a way that some of these other cities are? It goes back to, yes, individual council members may have the will to try to get something done, but they have no individual power to do it. There's a couple of problems there. I don't want to get too much in the weeds in there, but city council can only act when there are the essentially four of them that have agreed on a policy, and then they are willing to make that policy so clear that a city manager will say, I'd better do this, or either I'll lose my job, or thank goodness I have four strong votes so I can do this. That would entail some risk-taking on a city manager's part. What we have here, at least in one aspect of it, is a city manager whose experience and reputation prior to coming here was to always be to defer to the bureaucracy. And part of that might be because a person is fearful that if I don't at every point here have four, at least a four votes for me on the council, I could lose my job. And so they always feel that I'm vulnerable to losing it. And so therefore, I'm not going to take any risks. So what I will do is I'll be the kind of a city manager who perhaps I can make reports. I'll show up on time. I'll do all the right things, but I'm not going to take any chances. And leadership entails taking chances at acting in a strong way. The personality of Deborah Campbell, our manager here, and I don't mean to pick on her, but her personality and her her record throughout her career has always been to avoid controversy. I'm not going to stick my neck out here. That's not the way I get things done. She has even said this herself at a recent city council meeting where she said it takes us a while to get going. That's not the way a leader operates. The leader is a follow me. I have a vision and so forth. But the other piece of it is it also takes a city council that has a united vision of what to do. 
By law in North Carolina, they cannot get involved directly in anything having to do with executing the law. What do you mean by law they can't get involved other than just voting on something? Other than voting on a policy that comes before them, they are prohibited. And it would, in fact, be a criminal offense if a city council member said, look, there's a real problem here with our name one, sanitation department. I'm going to go down there and by God, I'm going to kick some ass. I'm going to tell those people in that department what they need to do. Any city council member who does that would be violating the law in North Carolina. You must go through the city manager. More after this. When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. So you're saying that in a strong mayor system, a a mayor who's accountable to the public, that person can be bold, can take risks. And because they have the sole authority to enact certain programs, they don't need a majority vote on the council to get things done. They can just unilaterally decide this is what we're going to do. And if it doesn't work or the public doesn't like how they do, they can throw that person out. But the council can't. The council can maybe freeze the budget or can make things difficult for the mayor. But The voters know that if there is a problem in the city, the person who is going to handle it is going to respond to it or we're going to we're going to hold them to account is going to be the mayor. And we can't do that. Esther Manheimer, I think, works very hard, tries her very best. She, like all the other council members, is by law prohibited from directing any city employee to do anything. What can we do? What are people pointing to? What are you hearing that can happen within the current form of government that is plausible and passable? I think that a very readily available step to take is the business investment districts, BIDs, referred to as BIDs. The business community here, particularly the downtown business community, acting through the Chamber of Commerce, is a great source of potential solution here. And I know the president and CEO of the Asheville Chamber of Commerce is extremely interested in creating what is called a business investment district here in 
downtown Asheville, the core of the city of Asheville, and possibly another one along the River Arts District. And what these are, it's it's the businesses getting together agreeing to tax themselves, usually a small amount, and those taxes would be specifically designated to address a problem that is a key here. I think first and foremost, what the business community would like to see in downtown is they would it's security and sanitation, those two things. And there are other things that you'd want to do beyond that, I think, cosmetic improvements to better parks, events that may draw people here, the kind of thing that make the quality of life go up. The arts may support some of those things. Let's put into context, you're talking about the business investment district, it's business owners taxing themselves, realizing that money has to come from somewhere. We're going to put money specifically toward improving these intractable problems. That's absolutely right. This, by the way, was an effort that was tried once before about 10 years or so ago. It didn't get traction then, I think for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think that the businesses in the core downtown area felt as threatened as they do now by what has happened here. So we've now reached, I think people are at DEFCON 5 and saying we've got to do something. And clearly we're not going to get it from the existing services here. The city is not going to be able to provide everything that we need. We're going to supplement those city services here. The other piece of it, though, is we have a large nonprofit sector in downtown and throughout Asheville. And the nonprofit sector, I think, has to find a way to be willing to be a part of this solution. So the businesses are going to be reluctant to step up and say, I, I'm whatever profits I'm making, I'm going to have to slice them in order to provide for this thing that we all need. But why is this nonprofit not taking a part of this, a piece of this? It would help enormously for a bid to become viable if there is a way that the, the solution and the expense is shared broadly, maybe even by residents in some ways would be an additional that would be passing a referendum in a sense. To oh, it ha- would have to be a referendum. Right. Yes, it would have to pass it. The city council would have to pass it, and there would have to be some kind of a vote of the people who are affected directly by that. You just said something a bit ago about nonprofits have to step up and play a role. I Wouldn't they argue we are doing all we can with the resources we have available? And you're talking about adding more resources, essentially money. But is there a skepticism? Are you sensing a skepticism that even if we do have more money, that the people tasked or charged with solving or addressing these issues are not doing it well? That even if we put money here, it's not going to to be used well, or we need to create new mechanisms that don't exist, that are outside the framework of existing nonprofits, outside the existing framework of our police department? Are we talking about creating new entities with this business investment district money, or where would such money go? The answer is yes. You've asked several questions in in there. This would be a new entity, and it would be, but it would be, it would operate in parallel with government. One of the things that, again, I think in some ways, again, points to a, I won't say a failure, but a shortcoming of 
the local government here is that there is even a need for a discussion about something like a, a bid coming up. We wouldn't have people saying we need to put additional resources of some kind into security if they felt well served by the Asheville Police Department in every way or sanitation. So the very fact that the business community is saying we or many in the community are is saying we need to have something that complements what government is doing is in some ways an indictment of uh, shortcoming of government. But anyway, that said, what what the bid I think can do is the resources that it gets, even from participation from nonprofits, will be focused very clearly on what the bid specifies as its mission. And again, what is being talked about here, number one, it's security. It's very important that if Asheville is going to be successful or continue to be successful as a tourist destination, people who come here have to feel that they are safe. So security is one. So there are different ways you can approach this short of having somebody armed or a security guard. They talk about having so-called ambassadors is one. Someone who is there who who is maybe wearing a, or looks like a London Bobby, somebody who's safe and not necessarily armed, but is, it shows a presence that, that these streets are safe because here we are, we're out there. And sanitation is another. It's the city can provide perhaps some public restrooms, but there may be many other different ways we can deal with sanitation. And then there, of course, there's the third element, and you touched on the the TDA, the Tourist Development Authority, where you can say, oh, and we're going to do something really terrific that will make people feel a lot better about downtown, so we're going to put some amenities in the parks, that kind of thing. That's what the TDA would focus on. They wouldn't take on the services, but they would add or complement them and perhaps do them in such a way that that it it lifts some of the burden. The Dogwood Trust is looking for ways to participate, and it will almost certainly have a role in treating the problem that you have talked about. It's already under construction is a, I believe, a 60-some bed treatment facility, short-term, an immediate treatment facility, that by itself, I think, will be a big help because it gives the police department, for instance, a place to take someone who not necessarily involved in criminal act, but needs some kind of help, needs a bed and perhaps somebody who is trained to deal with someone in a psychological crisis or a drug crisis. How much support among business owners are you seeing enough to actually get something going where there is enough agreement on this and risk-taking investment risk-taking to do this? And if so, how quickly do you think something like this will get up and running? I think it's a little premature for me to say with certainty where that stands. This idea, although the idea of bids has been around, as I say, it was here 10 years or so ago didn't pass. Um, so it came, it's just coming back. I think there's much more seriousness on the part of the Chamber of Commerce anyway to drive this forward, meaning that it would come, there would be a structure, there would be a goal, there would be people in place, and there would have to be, of course, governmental oversight of this. That is going to happen I literally within, I think, a matter of a few days or weeks. One of the things that the Chamber of Commerce did is it, it fully funded a study that 
was coming up with a, a plan. I want to say it was due the, I think it may be today or tomorrow, elements of that will come out. And then the business community, I think, will have to come together and say, yes, this is what we're intending to do so that it hardens up into a policy that you then are willing to take to the city council and to voters and others and go forward with it. But that's this can happen very quickly. And to get something up and running by the end of the year is, is certainly feasible. It, just to be clear, you said something, it didn't pass 10 years ago. Who has to pass this? Ultimately, this would have to be passed by the people who would be paying the fee. So the people, the business owners, it's a vote among them about whether to do this. Is there anything in your reporting that we haven't talked about that was you found surprising or stark that needs to be addressed or that nobody has answers for yet and anything that we haven't talked about yet? I found it surprising that the idea of having a strong executive in local government in North Carolina is prohibited by North Carolina law. And as I was reporting that, I talked to a number of of academics and experts who focus on that. I I was told that this is actually rooted in the North Carolina's colonial history that went back to the, of course, pre-revolution where the governor of North Carolina was appointed by the king, and the governor had all the authority of the king over whatever happened in North Carolina. And we know Lord Tryon, for whom the city of Tryon, North Carolina is named, was considered, I think, such a hateful human being that that among those people who wrote the first constitution for the state of North Carolina, it was thought we will never allow there to be a sort of a Tryon character in local government in North Carolina. From the very beginning, it was rooted that North Carolina would not allow there to be strong local figures, and there would be multiple checks on on local power. So far, that has just continued. And now the idea of a city deciding that it wanted to go in a different direction and have a strong mayor, it is virtually impossible to do. It would take a, a change in the state law and possibly in the state constitution. You don't see it in any major city. You look at New York City, Washington, D.C., Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Houston, in Texas. Almost every major city has a strong elected mayor form of government because voters want to hold somebody accountable. That, as Harry Truman said, want to know where the buck stops here. And we don't have that, unfortunately. What are you working on next in this series, assuming you're working on something now in it? The piece that we're working on now, and we'll roll this out in the next, within the next week or so, really is the solutions piece there. And we've looked at several cities over the last, in fact, posted today on the Watchdog and earlier this week, looking at those cities that we believe have similarities to Asheville, and yet they have been much more successful in dealing with the overall problem. We wanted to end up by saying that there is hope here. We have spent the first several pieces of this talking about all of these problems that we have, but there, there, is, there are ways that we can adopt that may work toward a solution. Unfortunately, changing our structure of government in a significant way is not one of them. 
I want to thank my guest today, Tom Fiedler of the Asheville Watchdog. You can read the entire downtown series of the Watchdog at avlwatchdog.org. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for the Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online by 6 a.m. every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at podavl.com. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash The Overlook Podcast. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. Hey everyone, Matt Pikin here from The Overlook, and I'll get back to my conversation in just a moment. But I'm asking you, the listener, yes, you, listening this very moment, is The Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? If you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, please join dozens of other listeners by supporting The Overlook with Matt Pikin through my Patreon campaign by giving just $5 a month. Give it higher levels and you'll earn free tickets to my live podcasting events. Your support means the world to me and helps keep this show free for anyone to hear. Go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast.